Head back to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting there. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles available. We just got a new shipment of Bibles in. Uh, they're on the side table here and the table in the back. We want to make sure that if you need a Bible, you have a chance to have a Bible. And I just want to say thank you again to everybody who's been donating into the Bible Fund. It's just been a huge blessing, not only to me, but also to people who have been receiving Bibles and picking them up and reading them. And if you've gotten one of those Bibles, I just want to continue to keep reading Keep reading, not for the sake of just reading exercise, because the Lord wants to speak to you. So he wants to speak to us this morning as well out of the book of Revelation. We've been seeing in chapter 1 that Jesus has been revealing himself. That was the purpose of this whole book as we come into Revelation. John, as he sat on the island of Patmos in exile, sat there and wrote the book of Revelation, not because he was just taking a creative writing class, but because Jesus said, I want you to write this book. This is the revelation of me. I want people to know who I am. I want them to see me. And so we've seen in this first chapter how Jesus has revealed himself, not as just a, a, a poor, homeless, Palestinian man as he was on earth, but he presents himself as the King Almighty, the God who was and is and is to come. He's the first and the last. He died, but he defeated death and he's raised up forevermore. And now he extends that love and he extends that fellowship and relationship to people like John whom he saves from their sin, having washed in his blood, and brings them into fellowship for eternity. Amen. And so that's where we finished with John. John stood before holy Jesus, feeling like he should die because he's worthless, but Jesus extending his right hand of fellowship and receiving John in that fellowship. And now he's got a job for John to do in this book. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus continues to tell John, Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So this is John's task. You see what I show you, and then you write that down. I'm going to show you things past, present, future. Whatever you see, you write that down. So it's hard for us sometimes because we want to know what those things are. There's lots of imagery, symbols, prophecy that's occurring in the book of Revelation. And sometimes it's hard, and our mind just begins to swirl. John himself doesn't give a lot of commentary saying, well, this is what this means. Let me sit down with you in a Sunday school class and tell you what all these things mean. He just writes it. I see it. I write it. But the good thing is there are times when Jesus pops in and says, now, this is what this means. You see this thing. This is what it means. Jesus will give us the explanation as well. We have things that are picked up symbolically and prophetically that have already been talked about in the scripture. So we might see something. And then we can go and dig around in other parts of Scripture and say, oh, the Lord is bringing this thing back into our sight, back so we can see it again, because it all points to Jesus. And so I just say that because this very next verse, Jesus is going to give us the understanding to some of these symbols that we see. We've already seen him with seven stars in his hand and with golden lampstands. And so we hit verse 20. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we had already seen that there were these stars in the Lord's hands. And he was in the midst of seven golden lampstands. In some of your translations it will say candlestick. But it's better translated as a lampstand. As it goes in accordance with what we see in the Old Testament. And let me explain that a little bit. 
These lampstands, which mean these churches, these were seven churches at this present time that were scattered through Asia Minor, that we'll find that, that they represent the totality of the church because what the Lord says to them, he says, whoever has an ear to hear what I'm saying to this church, you also hear it. So it's warnings for us all to take. But he talks about these lampstands. In Scripture, we find that in the tabernacle, there was a lampstand and that that lampstand was filled with oil. This is also described in the book of uh, Zechariah, and it comes, and that oil was representative of the Spirit of God being present in the midst of that lampstand. And if that oil was not present in the lampstand, guess what you don't get? You don't get light. It's the same way if you don't have electricity to these light bulbs. You don't get light. And so that's what the lampstands represent. And God says those lampstands that are filled with oil, each of those represents one of these churches that I'm writing to. And in fact, I would submit to you that every church is represented by a lampstand. This church, Unity Church, is represented by a lampstand. And if this church does not have the Holy Spirit, then we are lacking life and the opportunity to have light. And so here we see that he says, hey, these churches are represented by these lampstands. And then there's the seven stars that are in his hand. These are angels. Angels are messengers in the scriptures, often fighting, but through the word of God as well. He says, I've got these seven angels. Each of them are being sent as a messenger to these churches. As we go into chapters two and three, John is going to write the message that Jesus gives him and send it according to these angels to the churches. So he's going to write and send the message via the angel to Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, all these different churches. So that's what he says. You want to know what the lampstands are about? Churches. You want to know what the stars are about? Angels to the churches. And Jesus just says that because as we go into these uh, next churches and these passages, we're going to understand a little bit more of what's going on there. So now he's going to start writing these messages to these churches. And I want to preface what they are. They all kind of sound similar. They have a little bit of a uh, a same format as they go. But really, when you look at them, what they basically are is almost like a, a, a doctor's examination. You know, when you go to the doctor, you, you enter into that place and the doctor speaks a certain way, asks you certain questions, replies, and he's an authority to be able to look at your body and do all the tests and to accurately give you a diagnosis and a prognosis and all those osuses that doctors have, and they give those things to you. And isn't it good that when you go into that doctor's office that you can recognize a doctor and, and should be able to know that he's or she is talking and knows what they're talking about? And so I came up with some things. Uh, this is just slightly humorous, so laugh. It'll just make me feel better. But I came up with some ways. When you go to the doctor, you know they're a doctor because they have these attributes. They have these things about them. Uh, they call this the top seven identifiers of a doctor. Number seven is... Isn't it good that when you go into a doctor's office, you see their diploma? <laughs> That's good, right? It, it lets you know that that doctor went to school. They studied about the body. They've, they've seen uh, all the literature that's come down addressing the concerns that you have. And, and so all their studies, they have a diploma. You can look at it. There's a seal. There's probably the, the president from the school's signature. And you can say, hey, he's, he's done it. It's more than I got, so he should be a doctor. That's one sign. Number two you know that they're a doctor when they get that look on their face that says, I love to stick you with needles. You know, that's a sign of a doctor. Number five, they have x-ray vision. They have, what do I mean by that? When they look at those x-rays, they know what they're looking at. Have you ever gone into an ultrasound and be like, that's a baby? 
that looks weird. Or, or they're looking at the heart, and it's like, it looks like a heart. And they're like, but that's the blockage, right? They've got x-ray vision. They've been trained. They can look. They know how to look at the different things. Number four, <clears throat> you go in there, and they have on themselves a badge with a mug shot. And it usually has their name and says MD or something behind it. So the badge is an identifier. Number three, you know that they're a doctor when they go to examine you, and they, they lift up their, your, your shirt maybe to hear your heart, and they've got cold hands. I don't know what that is about all doctors. You know they're a doctor if they've got cold hands. Number two, you know they're a doctor if they've got bad breath. I don't know what it is about doctors, but have you ever been there and, and the, the doctor is having you, they're listening, and they say, okay, take a deep breath, and you're like, nuh-uh. Because that doctor is standing right in front of you going, take a deep breath. And the bad breath is coming to you. You're like, I don't want to take a deep breath. You know they're a doctor if they have bad breath. And the number one top identifier for a doctor is they have an illegible signature. You can't read those things. They just scribble that thing off, and I hear an amen here, and we just know. So you know that when you go into that examination that that doctor's there because you can identify through silly ways but through very real ways, like a diploma. This guy is a doctor. This woman knows what she's talking about. They're a doctor. Each of these letters to the churches, they're going to be approached by Jesus And they need to know that Jesus knows what he's talking about. He is the one who can look at the life and the soul of a church and say, I see what's good and I see what's bad. He's the one who can look at the churches and say, this has been happening, it needs to stop, or this hasn't been happening and it needs to start. He is the one who can enter into the room and say, I am the head of the church. And this is what I see. You know, it's really unreasonable for any human being who does not have the knowledge of God or understanding of Jesus, being led by Jesus, to step into any church and say, this is my evaluation of the church. You know who gets to evaluate the church? Jesus. Jesus. He may send a messenger, maybe a preacher, maybe an evangelist, maybe a layperson who has the Holy Spirit and says, here's what God sees in his church. But it's always Jesus saying, I'm the one. And so he addresses these churches and says, I'm qualified to give you this examination by doing what? He doesn't have a badge. He doesn't have a diploma. He starts these letters by re-giving his description from chapter 1, who that, what that chapter said he was. So let's take a look at what that looks like as he comes to examine one of these churches. This is the letter to Ephesus. We start chapter 2. It goes like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so we know these are the words of who? In particular, Jesus. Good, because in chapter 1 it said he was the one who has the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the golden lampstands. This is Jesus. I'm writing my words to you. I'm writing my words to you. So we have his credentials. Verse 2 goes on and says, I know your works. And I just got to stop right there and say, that is true for every single church. When Jesus looks at the church, whether it be the church at Ephesus or Unity Church in Four Oaks, he knows the works of the church. We may think we're doing this and we don't want to see. We're hiding like Adam and Eve in the bushes. (laughs) Guess what? He knows where we're hiding. The religion that we're hiding. He knows. He knows that when we're doing all this, he knows whether it's for him or not for him, whether he's told us to do it or he hasn't told us to do it. He knows. Jesus stands in front of every church and says, I know your works. Why? Because he has the credentials. It's his church. 
And so Jesus says to the Ephesians, and he'll say this to all the other churches, I know your works. I have seen your works. Nothing gets past me. That's Jesus. Nothing gets past him. So he writes them and says, I know your works. What's he going to say to the Ephesians? He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So when Jesus says, hey, I know your works, and he comes and gives them the report, it sounds like a pretty good report for Ephesus. They're doing things like they should. When apostles, so-called apostles, who've been sent to do ministry come, it says that the Ephesians receive those apostles and then do what? Test them. They test them to find out if they've actually been sent by Jesus. Are they preaching the word of God? Are they operating under the power and influence and wisdom of the Holy Spirit? Are they being divisive among all the churches? And so they would put these apostles to the test. It says the Ephesians did that. Do you know that a lot of churches don't test who comes into their church and preaches? They don't test who comes into their church and does ministry. They don't test the books that are being brought in and given away to their people. These are the apostles of today. And guess what? This says we should be testing them. Are they from Jesus? Are they from Jesus? This says the Ephesians did that. And it says in the midst of all that was going on that they were undergoing tribulations. We don't know what those tribulations were. Maybe they were being persecuted. Maybe some of them were being put in prison. Maybe some of them were being punched. Maybe some of them were losing their jobs. But they were going through trials and tribulations and they were standing up under it. They were not uh, so weary, but they were in fact just dedicated and doing what they were supposed to. And so right there from the beginning, when Jesus sees their works, they're, they're doing works. Jesus says, I see your works, and you've got this going for you. I see it. I know it. And you, you can't bear with those who are evil. Okay. But then he says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus says, you've got a pretty good report. I see you doing all these things. But I have this thing against you. When, when I come and I diagnose what's going on in your church, you have this record of doing these works, and I like that, but I have this against you. You don't love me anymore. You've abandoned the love you had at the first. Some of your versions will say you've abandoned your first love. Remember that first time you fell in love For some of you, that will be a person. You met somebody and you just hook, line, and sinker. You just thought, man, that is a beautiful person. Inside and out. And you just just desired to be with them. And, And maybe it's not a person. Remember that first time you got that new rifle? Now I'm talking your language. Or maybe that first time you had that brand new car. Or maybe the first time... Um, you, you found out Krispy Kreme donut was around. I don't know, but you fell in love, right? It doesn't matter what it is. We just have this thing where we, we just had this first love for something. There's this initial burst of commitment, of desire. And what do you do when you have that first love? You give that person, that thing, it's full atten- your full attention, right? You, you, you approach them properly and, and you speak to them 
caringly and you, you, you do what's necessary in the relationship to foster health. But what happens when that love goes? What happens when you've lost that emotion, that desire, like you had at the beginning? Some of you are sitting right next to the person who you had a first love for, and it's not there anymore. And nobody else in this room understands that except you two. And Jesus stands before his church. And nobody else in the world may recognize that this is going on because we're in the church, but Jesus will look at the churches and say, there's something not right here. You loved me, and you loved me dearly at the first. What's happened? The preacher by the name of John Piper, he gives this illustration of what it means to be in love with Jesus and joyfully serving him and not. He says, what if I went home and I showed up at the door and I knocked on the door and my wife came to the door and out from behind my back, I brought a bouquet of flowers. And my wife said, oh, they're beautiful. They smell great. They're my favorite. The color is just radiant. Why did you do this? And he says, as the husband, if I came out at that moment and just said, you know, I got you these flowers because it's my duty to get you these flowers. How would the wife respond in that moment? It's your duty. It's your duty to get me these flowers. But replay that moment and the, the man comes home and he knocks on the door and the wife comes and she opens and he pulls out from behind his back these beautiful flowers. They're radiant. They're gorgeous. They're her favorite. They smell good. And she says, oh, husband, they're beautiful. Why did you get me these flowers? And he says, because I just love you. I love you like I loved you the first time I saw you and spoke to you. And I just, I want to radiate my love towards you. That is a picture of retaining your first love, your, your love that you had at the first Whereas in the first encounter, it was, well, I'm doing this out of duty. Let me relate to you how I've actually seen this happen in Unity Church. And maybe it'll make more sense in the midst of a church context and a personally getting involved and being in love with Jesus uh, context. I remember the first time I came to Unity Church uh, with Katie. We were coming to Candidate. And the four days that we spent here... Uh, there would be special music, and, and the choir would come up and sing. And i got to tell you, you came up, and you got on your saddle, or whatever we called that. You saddled up, and you buckled in. And, man, you sing up here, and when you sing, it was just like, pow! I mean, coming out of you was just this love and desire for God and what he was doing in the midst of the church, and, and, and whatever. It was just, boom! And... Everything went forward with the relationship between Unity and the Hudsons, and, 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 and we came together. And then over the last year, the choir went forward, and I, I'm just going to be super honest with you. I'd watched the choir come forward and sing songs about joy with no joy. I would see the choir sing because they had to. It was duty. And right now, there's probably some choir members that are mad at me. But I got to tell you, you know, (laughs) I got to tell you, this happens across the church. 
I guarantee you there's a preacher in this church that feels that some Sundays when he comes up and full of the joy for the Lord stands up and preaches because Christ is his first love. And there's days when it's a wrestle and he stands up here and he preaches out of duty. And that's to my fault. And what I've loved as we go back to the choir is this. If you remember at the end of the summer, the call for choir and for practice was this. Not that, hey, everybody just needs to get here on Sunday because we're having choir. It was, go to the Lord and ask him, should I be in the choir? Do you want me to sing? Do you not want me to sing? How do you want me to sing? Do you want me to do this? And it was, you do whatever the Lord tells you to do. do. And you know what I've seen? A difference. I don't know if anybody else has has noticed it. Maybe uh, I have sat there in that seat. And ever since you've begun this year, I have noticed a difference in the way that you sing. Because when you come up and and sing now, you may be lost as far as communication with with the guys in the back, and, and you may not have been able to go to the last practice, but I can tell that when you come up in here and you sing now, you are singing not out of duty. You're not singing because you have to. You're singing here because you love Jesus, and he's told you to get on the stage. And I love that in the midst of people responding to the Lord because they love him, we've got girls who are young, we've got men that are old, and they're all standing here together saying, we rejoice because the Lord is good. Amen. And you know what? We can tell. And you know who else can tell? Jesus. Isn't that awesome? He knows your heart. For better or worse, He knows it. He knows whether your rear end is in this seat this morning because you had to, you felt dutiful to, or because you were going after your first love. You were here because Jesus It's so great. Look what he's done for me. I'm so thankful. I cannot wait to sit there and see what he has in the midst of the fellowship for us this morning. You see, the Ephesians, they were doing a lot of good things out of duty. And Jesus then came and says, but you know what? I have this against you. You have left the love you have at the first. You may not be a choir member and you may not be the preacher, but I guarantee you, God is looking at your heart saying, Are you being dutiful or are you being a lover? Do you love me? Do you love me like you did at the first? Let me ask you this. When you came to know Jesus, do you love him or do you desire him as much today as you did that day? That's what the Ephesians are dealing with. And how serious is it? Well, let's look. He has that against them. He says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. That's how far they've gone down. He says, repent. He actually tells them this is sin. What you've done is sinful. You need to repent. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus tells them, if you don't respond to the words that I'm telling you and go back to being in love with me, if you don't stop just doing all the religiousness and just going to church and just testing the apostles and just being in the midst of tribulation, without me, if you just do those things but you don't love me, guess what? I will remove your lampstand. What does that mean? What does a lampstand represent? It represents the church. Jesus tells them, if you don't stop doing this, you will stop being a church. If you don't stop doing this, you may have individuals that still love Jesus, but together, I won't be among you anymore. And you may go outside and see the word church on the sign, 
But that doesn't what makes a ch- that's not what makes a church. Jesus makes a church. His Holy Spirit present, that's what makes a church. And Jesus says, I'm going to pull that lampstand away. That's a serious thing, he says to the Ephesians. I don't even know if the church of Ephesus is there anymore. Most of these churches here aren't, which means at some point he pulled their lampstands. I hope there's never a day when the Lord comes to Unity Church and says, you know what, you don't love me anymore. Give me back my lampstand. I want there to be more oil. I want there to be a brighter light. I want us to be in love with Jesus and repent from things that he's told us we should not be doing and come back to him because I don't want the lampstand leave. He says this, he says, yet this you have, this is another good thing. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. This was a, a group of heresy um, that Jesus did not like because he says, uh, which I also hate. So he did not like what they were doing. We'll get into the Nicolaitans later on in the chapter when they're described again. But then he goes on and says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this begins by saying, this isn't just for the church at Ephesus, but if you've got an ear, I want everybody at this time to put your hand up and wiggle your ear. And then I want you to take your other hand and wiggle your other ear. And if by chance I have somebody in the church service this morning who only has one ear, I'm very sorry for making you feel odd at this point. But if you just wiggled your ears, guess what? This says that the words that are being given aren't just for the church at Ephesus, but whoever has ears, then you hear what he's saying to the churches because you take warning yourself. You be encouraged yourself. Whatever Jesus is saying to them, apply it to your life and say, huh, does Jesus see me as just a person of duty? Or does he see me as somebody who loves him and responds with works that he's told me to do out of love? And that's between him and you, really. It's not just to Ephesus. It's to you. And you know what's great? It says that here, to the one who conquers, the word there also is overcomers, the ones who are victorious. And in Scripture, the ones who are victorious are the ones who have been washed in the blood of Christ and are living in Christ and led by His Spirit. That's the one who conquers. So if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus... He says, hear these words, but also here's what's for you. He will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? In order to understand that part, you have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you remember when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he told them they could not eat of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. There was another tree that was described at that point called the tree of life. They went and they had the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate it and so they were doomed to die and entered into a tragic life full of sin and headed towards death. But God had a plan to go and save them. And so he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He put out a cherub there with a flaming sword going back and forth because he says, we do not want them to get back and to be able to take of the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. And so he blocks the way to the tree of life. Well, why did he not want them to eat the tree of life at that moment? Why? Because he had not saved them yet from their sin. If they were to go and take of the tree, they would just continue to live in endless tragedy. But now that Jesus has died and he extends that salvation to people, when you are saved, he is waiting for his return to give you the opportunity to eat from the tree of life Because now in Christ, 
can eat it and not live in forever tragedy. You will eat of the tree of life and live forever in his presence, forever in his joy, forever in his peace, forever in his love, forever in his hope, forever in ever and ever. If you conquer, if you are victorious, not because of anything that you have done, but because you trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you will be saved and you will eat of the tree of life and you will live forever in ultimate life. It's going to be awesome. And so he says, that word's not just for the Ephesians. That word is for Unity Church. And until that day, when you're waiting to eat that tree of life, do this. Love him. Love him. Love him with all you got. And you've, you head into these holidays saying, all right, I'm doing Christmas just because that's what we do. That's not the way to approach it. We could do holidays dutifully. Tomorrow when the women get together and they make pies and you bring your ingredient, maybe you're in charge of the, the whipped cream. I don't even know if they got whipped cream. They need whipped cream. And you show up and you're just like, all right, it's my duty to make pies. Or you come to play practice tonight. And you're like, well, I guess it's my duty to go to practice. Or you go to pray tonight before bed and you say, well, I guess it's my duty to say a prayer before bed. That's not how we do it. We are to be a church in love with Him. Remember how much you loved Him at the first? Go back to that. How do you go back? To the Ephesians, He said, repent. Repent. Turn from your sin, turn from what you're doing, and just go to Jesus and say, I'm so sorry, make me love you again. I want to do the works that you tell me to do, but I want to do them not out of duty. I want to do them out of an expression of saying, Lord, I love you. I love you with everything I've got. I love you with all my time. I love you with all my money. I love you with all my family. I love you with my job. I love you with my kids. I love you with whatever it is. I love you with my choir. I just put everything on the table and say, I repent. I'm going to love God as I did at the first. There may be some of you who don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Because you've never had a first. You may not actually be in relationship with Jesus. You've been in love with the world and maybe doing religion on the side, but guess what? That doesn't get you to the tree of life. That does not allow you to conquer. In your life today, if you're feeling convicted about being estranged from Jesus... It might be because you've never had a relationship with him. Maybe you've had a relationship with churchy things, but not the one who's the head of the church. And so this morning, you need a first. You need that first love. You need that initial moment with Jesus where you lay it all on the line and you say, Jesus, I have just been living for myself. I'm a man or a woman full of sin. I'm wretched. And I recognize that for that sin, I will die. Oh, but Jesus, I recognize that you came and died for me. And so right now I ask your forgiveness. And I pray that you would wipe me clean. And I pray that you would cause me to love you. And you know what? That'll be the first. If you haven't had that first yet, make today your first and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. And within you will swell up a love for him like you have never experienced. It'll be like love at first sight. And you'll be so infatuated with Jesus that nothing will compare to him. 
And if you're a young child this morning, you may say, well, the preacher, he's just always talking to the adults. You know what? There's no better time to love Jesus than as early as you can. Don't wait till you're an adult to love Jesus. Don't wait until after Christmas. Don't wait until you're in high school. If Jesus, even at your young age, is telling you, I want you to love me, I want to forgive you of your sin, then at your age, you come and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to love you with my life. And come be saved today. For you, some of you who are on the other end of the spectrum, and you're just waiting until the day you die and hope it all works out, there is never a time when it's too late for you to have that first love. It's like those people who have gotten into retirement never having known each other and then suddenly they meet that person for the first time. They get married. You hear those stories all the time. You're not too old to be married to Jesus. You may have never known Him, but today, let Him be your first. Don't go through the rest of the years of your life lost and alone and hopeless. Let today be your first. And so it's a call to everybody. If you don't know Jesus, let today be your first. Love Him. Ask His forgiveness and be saved and if you've been a believer for some time it is a critical thing that you repent you know why it affects not only you but remember he's writing to a church and if the individuals in the church didn't repent then he takes the lampstand from that whole body of believers your your resistance to repent and to love Jesus affects me. Your just doing church out of duty affects all those sitting around you. Your just doing religion in these walls affects the people of Four Oaks and Benson and Smithfield and whoever might come and visit and come into contact with our church because all they're just doing is seeing dutifully religious people. Who would want to be a part of that? Oh, but if you're a lover of Jesus, that affects me too. And if you love Jesus, that affects everybody who's sitting by you. And if you love Jesus, that will affect the way we go and approach this community as we leave these doors. And we will go introduce them to a God who loves them and will save them. So repent this morning. And it will bear fruit. And by the grace of God, He will not take away our lampstand. Father, we come to You. And we're thankful that we get to just kind of peek into these letters that you're having written to these churches. And we pray that as we get a look at their report card, as as you, the doctor, are diagnosing them, that, that we're to apply that. We're to take the same warnings. And Lord, this morning, if we both individually and as, as a congregation have seen things in us that, that is our sin, Lord, we pray that we would repent from that this morning. I, I pray for those, Lord, who don't know you this morning, whether they're eight years old or 80 years old. I pray that by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You'd be saving them at this moment, Lord, that they would be calling upon You. And right now, Lord, I pray that in their hearts they would say, Lord, forgive me my sin and make me a child of God. And Lord, for those who have called upon Your name and are believers but have drifted back into works, back into duty, Lord, I pray that You would remind them of the love that they had at the first. I pray that You would renew within them 
just a, a, an overwhelming sense of joy and peace and love for you. And that that love for you would spill over in the love that they have to the people that are around them and the people in this church and the people in this community. And Lord, that, that you would just give us a fresh start. Lord, we pray that you would have us to not wander away into sin. But Lord, that we would continue to press on towards you no matter what tribulation is in our life. We're thankful that you're in charge of us because we know that since you defeated death, you can also take on all the issues in our church. And Lord, we know we got a lot. And I got a lot in myself. But Lord, we know that you're doing a good thing in us. And so, Lord, we stand here on the verge of Thanksgiving asking you to make us a people of thanks. That every day we would be thankful for all that you are and all that you're doing. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.